0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode thirty of uh, Tennis with an Accent. This is Sakib, and guess who's back? Hey, everyone. This yeah. is Anand. Yeah, we have sorted our some somewhat differences, and we decided to continue this podcast. Just kidding. Yeah, we broke up. Now we're back. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Anand's been working. You know, uh, again, you know, he has a very challenging and time-consuming job. So, uh, and he was on a vacation to Iceland. Mm-hmm. So we won't talk about that. No, that's, I guess, uh, you know, we can save it for another episode. But it was an eventful uh, weekend in tennis with uh, Federer and Lopez winning some important titles and also Petra Kovatova. So the agenda will, of course, uh, revolve around those wins. And we'll also talk about lawn tennis.
1: All right, let's go.
0: So Anand, where do you want to start with? It was... uh, Uh, You know, a big week in tennis leading up to Wimbledon.
1: Yeah, let's start off with a big story really for me was uh, Kavitova winning in Birmingham. Uh, She beat Ashley Barty. Uh, But the big backstory, Saqib, as you know, is that um, Kavitova was attacked um, at her home. Uh, This was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, about eight months ago. Yeah, something like that, I think during December. Yeah, and she actually, uh, she was attacked and um, then she actually fended off her attacker who stabbed her in a hand. Um, she actually lost a few tendons, uh, had surgery, and most people thought that she wouldn't come back and play again. Uh, and here she is back playing at the highest level. Uh, one of the things that's amazing is she's still not back at 100%. She says she still can't feel a couple of her fingers. And uh, winning in Birmingham, I think, was an incredible result. Well, this is, uh, without a
0: doubt, a very incredible story. Even it goes beyond tennis. And it says a lot about her resolve and focus and the ability to come back this early. And yeah. I'm sure there are some mental scars, which uh, which is quite different than what happened to Celis, because
1: Celis never got a chance. It was during a match, but Kovitova, what a remarkable... It is. And, incident. you know, the, I I was... I, this actually reminded me of another tennis player, um, Anna chakvatadze Do you remember her? Yeah, she's been doing some commentary. I reached out. Huh? Yeah, so this girl, she was 20. She was in the top five, made a semifinals of a slam. Things were looking great. She was the next big Anna on the tour. And um, she was attacked at home too. Her, she and her parents, she was tied up um, at gunpoint. And her parents were uh, beaten up and they stole a lot of money. Um Anna was traumatized, and she said she never recovered from that incident. Um, she never got back to the top ten after that. Um, I'm just saying these players are so vulnerable. Um, Kavitova, she's a top player, but she doesn't have any kind of personal security when when she's uh, you know at home or uh, away. And a lot of people know who she is, so she's definitely a target in the in the situation. And that that's something I think most players. They're alone um, and, and you know, they're, they're going around, traveling around, making their own plans. And um, it it just it just puts that into focus. Uh, okay, let's talk more about her tennis. Uh, what do you think? Uh,
0: th- does this win really make her a Wimbledon favorite?
1: I, I always thought uh, Kvitova is one of those players who she's, for me, the female Ivanisevic uh, in terms of her game. Um, at Wimbledon, she's got the game to win at any time when she turns it on. Uh, she's won it twice already, so... She, yeah, and so did Goran, right? And he he almost won one more, I would say, against Sampras. Um, the the thing with her game is that she is so on and off, but um, it's tailor-made for grass. Uh, the lefty serve, uh, she, she's a great volley or two, and she's got some of the biggest ground strokes in the game. And uh, guess who's out? Serena Williams.
0: And uh, I think the break in a way, helped uh, Petra because she's kind of a hot and cold player. I remember listening to a uh, Tennis Channel match with her, I think, last week when women's tennis was on TV. Uh, someone said, I think it was Mary Carello who said, uh, Kovitova's Kavito, coach likes this hot and cold uh, strategy. They don't mind her losing some matches. Obviously, it's not a strategy, but then they think when she can hit her stride, she's as good you know, a player to beat anyone and just go through the field. So you know this incident of course very unfortunate uh, we're lucky to have her back but i guess this kind of you know she's that kind of player once she catches momentum she's very difficult to stop and you're right serena gone and even uh, sharapova not playing so this is
1: uh, this is like a good opportunity uh-huh? i know i mean the women's draw is wide open as always uh, i mean ostapenko won the french open um, I don't see her coming back and winning Wimbledon right off, but um, that I think it's it's showing how wide open it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, a player like Kavitova has to be looking right now at going deep in this uh, this Wimbledon. And one more thing, I mean, I, I I cannot say this enough number of times. Coming back, even if he she wasn't hurt, she didn't go through all this trauma, it would have been really hard. Uh, we we praise people like Rafa and Roger for doing this. She came and she's coming back from something very serious and even life-threatening. Um, so every match for her is going to seem really special. Um, she's going to feel some pressure, I think some nerves. Um, and and I think I, I just have to applaud her for uh, for doing what she's doing. No, agreed. This is like a
0: second inning, the second tennis life for her. So yeah, kudos to her and it's, uh, it's it's probably the biggest story in tennis right now. Biggest story and that's who I'm rooting for, this Wimbledon. All right. So uh, let's talk about the other winners. I mean, what do you think of Roger Federer's win? Uh, was there any doubt in your mind after he lost to Tommy Haas last week in uh, Stuttgart that uh, his st- status as Wimbledon favorite is in jeopardy? Or you were cool, calm, collected like Fed himself?
1: I mean, let's, let's face it. We, after what we saw at the Australian Open, we know that Roger was not going to go away. Um, he's, he's definitely looking relaxed and warmed up. Uh, the loss to Tommy Haas was interesting. I mean, it was his first competitive match coming back. But Haas has always given him some trouble. Um, he beat him on grass last uh, the last time they played. yeah. And um, he's his friend. I mean, maybe the intensity was not, not there. Uh, first match coming back. But, but he showed that he had it when, when he needed it.
0: It's interesting you bring the friendship. That kind of also puts in perspective the dilemma if the Zverevs have to play each other or what the Williams feel when they play each other. You know, if... if playing a friend can soften you up. I'm not buying it, but if the thought does uh, cross Federer's mind, so it must be hard playing a sibling, which, again, has been documented and seen over the years. I, I
1: mean, let, let's see. I mean, if this was a grand slam, uh, I, I, I don't think Federer would have let up against okay. Tommy Haas. Right. But, but this is, you know, uh, all said and done. It's, it's a warm-up, and he's playing in the first round. Uh, Tommy Haas is a nice little story going for him himself. And, yeah, these results happen.
0: And one more thing I would like to add about Federer. I think we're so used to seeing him play pretty and uh, effective and, you know, all these adjectives that come to mind, that kind of tennis. So his match against Hashinov in the semifinals, a lot of people kind of were skeptical if this is the Federer that's going to show up, is not going to be good enough at Wimbledon. But the problem is Federer has created this monster for himself. Even in Australia, he had these matches against Melzer. Granted, it was the first match after the comeback. And then even against Noah Rubin, he was his tennis was kind of all over the place by the Fed standards. But guess what then? You know, he just turned up a notch against Burdick and rest his, you know, tennis history. So here also, I think the next day he just came out firing against Verev. And we have to realise, I think after thirteen or fourteen hundred matches, whatever Federer has played,
1: you cannot play at that level every day. And he Sometimes, can't. And it's it's a good thing he's getting those demons out of the way in, in matches like these. I mean, you don't want that, that to happen, say, if he's in a quarter-final against, uh, you know, Babrinka or songa um, I, I think this, this was the ideal kind of situation for him to, if, if he had any doubts coming back, uh, for him to kind of uh, push himself a little bit and, and get through that.
0: Fair enough. So, the other person who won this week was Feliciano Lopez. And I'm kind of very impressed has how he has turned his career around. Because uh, this is a guy, you know, who plays throwback tennis. And I remember clearly, early days of his career, Brad Gilbert would say often that his backhand is one of the weakest shots in the top 100. And there was a playbook was on just to go to his backhand and win a rally. And this is a guy who's really, uh, on in this era where surface uh, homogenized the game is more physical. He kind of had a 90s game. Big serve, big forehand, decent volley. An unusual Spanish talent who 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 did not choose clay as his preferred surface and to see him winning in his, uh,
1: you know, he's 35 same age as Roger. It was pretty phenomenal. Right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things that's that's awesome about the tour right now is all of these 30 somethings doing really well. Um, we just saw a couple of 30 somethings play the, uh, the French open final, uh, but all credit to FLO. I mean, uh, Saqib you and I were just chatting about Lopez, how we watched him, um, in the 2004 U.S. Open against Leighton Hewitt. That's how old he is. I mean, just to draw some perspective. And, um, and he's still playing, I think, his best tennis, I would argue. Um, yeah, I think it was 2009, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. He was on this
0: losing spiral. You know, he lost a lot of first-round matches, I think 6-7. And it all uh, eventually led to his loss uh, in Cincinnati. I think the legend goes, he goes up to the umpire's microphone and says, I'm looking for a tennis lesson. So this is a guy who is very fragile. Not that you know most tennis players don't uh, have not gone through that kind of a lull or uh, you know where they're lacking self-belief but you look at his stats on the ATP world tour last 3 4 seasons the guy is putting on 30 plus win season which is commendable. So yeah. I mean him winning this tournament being three time Wimbledon quarterfinalist, two time Eastbourne champion. This this was emphatic and he beat a guy Myron Cilic, who's you know one of my outside picks to win this year. So for Lopez to come back and, you know, exercise demons of the defeat he, held, you know, he had against Dimitrov in the
1: 2014 final when he lost two tiebreakers, this was pretty special. It definitely was. I mean, let me ask you this. Uh, I, when I think of Lopez, I have to compare him against Vardasco, uh, a guy who's probably the mirror of Lopez in some ways. He's got a big, big game. He has every shot, but never lived up to his potential. In Lopez, you see the opposite. Um, how do you? how would you rank them in their career?
0: I disagree and agree in the same sentence. You're right. I mean, they both are lefty and a uh, lot of potential. But I think Verdasco plays a, a game that's more suited to this generation. Uh, he's probably, if there was no big four, he's a guy who would have won a slam here or there because he had the weapons. Lopez' weapons, I think he kind of over the years adjusted. I think uh, Verdasco reached top 10 and uh, the potential faster than Feliciano. And I think Lopez... Has been more steady
1: in the last uh, four or five years. That's true, and but but uh, on grass, I will say this: I mean, Lopez is the far superior player. Well, uh, oh, are, you, are you talking grass or in general? On grass, okay, yeah,
0: no, no doubt. Lopez is, I think, for the last few years, he's been, I think, one of the top ten,
1: top ten grass, grass. court players, and, and he's only trailing three players. I think in grass court wins. He's he's got a good solid volley. Um, he's got a decent slice. I
0: uh, mean, the Sampras era uh, grass, Lopez would be causing a lot of upsets. You know, he would be tough to break. It'll go down to tie breaks, you know. Uh, he he would probably he probably would have played a Wimbledon final, uh, you know, twelve or thirteen. You would have ago. been
1: the uh, Greg Grisetsky of his era, huh? Uh, I think he
0: plays a. <laughs> I don't know. I think he plays a better better brand
1: of tennis than uh, old Greg. <laughs> <laughs> old Greg, yeah, no, no doubt. Um, I, I mean, I I like uh, Lopez's game. I uh, I've watched a few of his matches now live uh, in person, and I've I've started to like the things that he does well, which is He's very consistent uh, on his backhand slice. He's got that big serve, and both his first and second serve. They bail him out all the time. And his volley is really solid.
0: And, and he works for his points. I mean, his backhand is still somewhat not a weapon, if not a liability, somewhere in the middle. And one thing that get, gets under uh, you know, or overlooked is Lopez's fitness. The guy is supremely fit. A lot of time involved in these big matches, you know, long matches on outside courts. And uh, there's a reason, I mean, uh, you know, and he himself said, that this win is one of the best wins of his career, especially coming in, you know, at the age of 35. I think his uh, entire team, like Enrique Molina, I think he's his manager. You could see the smile on the face. This was like a big, big win for Feliciano.
1: I can't say this enough, I guess. Yeah, no, so this is a perfect segue because sake Lopez is clearly a dark horse for Wimbledon. Um, And I know you and I traded articles on our website, tennisaccent.com, on uh, who are the favorites and the dark horses. Do you put Lopez, uh, you know, do you see him going far? What is a dark horse? Dark horse is someone who can actually win it? Or dark horse is someone who's going to make life hell for one of the guys and make quarters or semis? I, I would say a dark horse is a guy who yeah who will pull out a surprising result that at least gets him to the semis.
0: Oh, wow. Semis is kind of something Lopez hasn't done. He's been three times a quarter finalist. Yeah, he's, he's in that short list. If the draw does open up, then I think he can do some damage, but... Uh, I would put him over Query. I, I think you chose Query in your article. I
1: think yes. uh, I'm having more confidence at the moment in Feliciano than Sam Query. Would wouldn't be wouldn't it be a sweet matchup to see um, Lopez against Rafa on grass?
0: Yeah, the earliest I think they probably could play is what uh, third round. It's Lopez. Uh, yeah, I don't know what his ranking is right now, but yeah. So yeah, Lo, uh, and Lopez has beaten Nadal in two tiebreaks in at Queens. Yes. I think that was a few years ago. So, yeah, that,
1: that'll be de- definitely... And that's probably the surface fancy is playing Nadal. So, I picked my Dark Horses. So, you, why don't you tell me if you have any other uh, players you, uh, on your mind? Uh,
0: not for Dark Horse Nation, but I think uh, we can definitely look at some names who could do some damage in the first week to the lower seeds. Like, uh, I think Vasek Pospisil is uh, one guy who kind of is, uh, you know, like his favorite surface is grass. He's channeling his... Uh, I think all his energies uh, to this Grand Slam. To uh, he's back in the top hundred. Uh, I spoke to Mark Woodford and Rook, uh, who was coaching him for the last six months. You know they ended their partnership in May, ironically three days after our podcast mm-hmm. interview. But yeah, he's one guy who definitely can give someone trouble uh, in the first week, and then uh, Jersey janovic is another guy. He know. is back. He, I, he's I was- playing with the PR, so he's uh, one guy to watch out for uh Nicolas Mahout is another guy who, like uh, he's also aging you know well like Feliciano Lopez He's getting the most out of his i think he's probably won his 60 70% of his tour wins after the age of say like 28 or 29 i'm sure he's hoping he's not going to be playing John Isner anyway no no they, they, they've had their moment i think that's uh, two years in a row
1: they played and uh, yeah and these these are two three names that kind so of so i out. i just uh, you know unfortunately the indian player who beat dominic thiem uh, ram kumar ramanathan is not playing wimbledon do you think that do you think that he's got a future here
0: no i think uh, good on uh, for you know ram kumar for winning that i was excited finally you know an indian causing an upset but uh, in my honest opinion uh, ram kumar is not even the best indian player i think yuki Bambri... Clearly, is uh, the superior player. Yeah, and, and to put it in context, he didn't even make the qualifiers at Wimbledon. Yeah, and uh, he was not even. I, I think. Uh, yeah, he just came in to get some ranking points and what a week to be, to beat uh, Dominic Team, who continues to puzzle everyone with his choices of playing tournaments. Uh, his, I think the guy loves to play, but there's something seriously wrong. You know, and a lot of people. I'm not going to challenge Team's effort, but my Twitter line is flooded with you know, questionable comments for why Dominic even made that trip?
1: Well, at least we can say this. He didn't expend a lot of energy, uh, unlike last year, where he played every tournament, played deep, and then burned out in the slams. Um, we know he can play on grass. Uh, he's beaten Roger on grass. So, uh, yeah, but
0: the, that that should have an
1: asterisk. I mean, that Roger was not the Roger that usually shows true, up. True, true. But, um, I mean, all said and done, uh, the team has won at Queen's, and um, I think... Let's hope this is a year where he's able to actually uh, put together a decent result. Yeah, let's hope so for Dominic uh, Team's sake. So, yeah, let's do a
0: segue on how, you know, I still think Wimbledon time is called lawn tennis time. I mean, this is how we were introduced to tennis as kids. For the longest time, they were grass coats while growing up in India. And this is, uh, you know, that moment of the year where the sport is still, in my mind, lawn tennis, not, you know, like a hard court tennis or clay tennis. Or tennis in general. I think it's lawn tennis.
1: Yes, definitely. I, I I mean, for me, it was a combination of watching it on TV and then even listening to it on radio. Uh, if you remember, we used to have shortwave radio in India. And as soon as the news came on, we lost tennis on TV and then we'd had to switch to radio uh, to continue the match. And it was just it was just a very exciting time. I mean, as, as young kids trying to listen to every shot being played and... Uh, Uh, you know, I I still get goosebumps just thinking about those times when I was watching tennis.
0: Yeah, watching Wimbledon back on color TV back in that era, uh, even though it wasn't HD, the grass and the whole setting looked, uh, you know, it it, it was something different. Uh, Not used to, not, you know, what we used to see about the cricket matches on TV. Wimbledon was like that special two weeks of the year when, you could see a lot of great tennis drama unfold, but even just the setting.
1: And t- tell the- me if I'm wrong, but players back then just seemed more theatrical. Um, I mean, you had people like Becker and um, McEnroe. You had, uh, you know, uh I mean, all these players, they just seem bigger than life. Maybe because we were young kids, or maybe it's just how they behaved. on I court.
0: think it's a little of both. It's evolution. Now we watch so much tennis, you know, we get tennis on our phones. It's a different world we're living in. Uh, back in the day, I used to wait for the morning newspaper to get my tennis results. And uh, I don't want to brag about this, but there was a time when we didn't get these stats. And we knew, we memorized these head-to-heads, these records. Right now, I have to tweet something. I go Google it just to fact-check. You yes. know, like, so this is a different era. But uh, our memory and you know, uh, and you know recollection of tennis data was very different before internet. So, I mean, yeah, uh, probably we we're giving too much about our age by saying these things because <laughs> I think half the people who listen to this they grew up watching it. Uh, so cetera, no, I, and I know.
1: I know. We always talk about Becker and McEnroe, the big guys. Sake. We were talking about dark horses. Who in in the eighties and nineties were you looking at as dangerous players in the draw on grass? Uh,
0: it's, it's hard because uh, to recall those names, but I know like there were some good grass court players over the years. Like uh, as recent as uh, Sampras, there's a Dutch guy, Sean Schalken. I think he. Did a couple of Imberland quarters, if, if I'm not If mistaken. any of you guys have YouTube, check out Schalken's and serve. He's got one of the weirdest serving. Modes. Yeah, so he was a grass court, you know. He definitely was a snake in the grass, like going by your article. And uh, Wayne Ferreira, again, you know, like he was a guy who could play on grass. I would say, you know, he was. He probably was like an outside contender. Yes. He had a big game. And uh, even going back to the 80s, uh, Mark Woodford, I mean, for a couple of years, you know, he made the second week. And so, Solobodon Zivojinovic, you know, like... Uh, he was the guy with the big yeah, serve. Yeah, he was the big serve. He was Becker's, you know, rival and aces. And
1: uh, who else comes to mind for... Uh, you know, I, one match I remember very distinctly was Boris Becker against David Wheaton. Do you remember that? Yeah, the
0: 91 semis. Yeah. Yes.
1: And uh, so David Wheaton, too, was a very dangerous player on grass. That was a freak result, David Wheaton coming to Wimbledon semis, you know. And I, he, he gave Becker everything he could handle.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, but the, the margins were so slim. You know, there were a lot of 40-love games, and that's why 5-all, 4-all became so clutch. That's why the Beckers and Samprases, you know, they would just come through in those matches. And even Todd Woodbridge, I don't know if you remember the breakthrough match with Pete Sampras, when Sampras needed three tie breaks to beat him, and everybody was kind of hoping for Sampras to break through because he had lost, like, first round two
1: or three years in a row. So yeah, those those were some of the great matches. Woodbridge, I will say this, I mean, he was immensely talented. Uh, he just didn't have the the firepower. Um, if if yeah, the dude. guy was a little, uh, maybe he had a couple of inches on him. Yeah, he, he definitely had the serve and volley game to take him far at, uh, at a place like Wimbledon.
0: So since we are in Wimbledon mode, what are the, some of the uh, best matches uh, or your favorite matches you recall since we're going down memory
1: lane? Well, let's see. There's like so many matches, uh, Saqib. I mean, I don't want to bring up another Becker match. So let me pick a different one, which I thought was very memorable for me, uh, was the um, Agassi-Ivanesevich final, uh, 1992 Wimbledon. Who were you rooting for? It was very interesting because I started the match rooting for one player. And by the end of the match, I was rooting for Ivanesevich. I started the match rooting for Agassi. I always rooted for the American player. I mean, I, I don't know why, but uh, and so you knew this was going to be well, your adopted home, I guess. Huh? So you were already working in progress. I mean, Agassi definitely caught my fancy as uh, you know in my in my teens because you know he wore his denim shorts and he came out and played, and you know there were all these articles about you know how he was a punk, and I for some reason I, I really thought he was going to be something. And then he disappeared for a a little bit. It seemed like he he took his uh, French Open losses very badly. And then he came back in 92 and played that final. And I was rooting for Agassi. He was clearly the guy I wanted to see. And that was his first
0: Wimbledon. No, second Wimbledon. He came in 91, lost to Wheaton in the quarterfinals. I take that back.
1: Right. And so, but the thing is, I just thought Ivan Izovich played amazingly well that match. And he deserved to win it. Um, it just so happened, uh, I think, Agassi raised his level in that fifth set.
0: Actually, uh, 92 Wimbledon is one of my favorite Wimbledons except the ending because I was hoping for a Goran win after since Becker had lost to Agassi in the quarters. Uh, Goran served, what, 207 aces yes. in seven matches. And there was a match against Mark Woodford. I remember, again, you know, we keep bringing up Woodford now. I think <laughs> in the second round, Goran served, I think, 30 or forty forty four 44 aces. And there was a time that even uh, Woodford, you know held the tennis racket like a baseball bat because he was just not touching those balls. He didn't even have a... He was not even guessing right. Yeah. So that was a special Wimbledon. It had a lot of great matches. I remember uh, a match between, uh, I think, Ivani and Edberg in the quarters. Sampras took out Steak. And uh, so that that was a special Wimbledon. But my uh, One of my favorite Wimbledon matches is Becker beating Agassi in 95. Because I had just moved to States and I was a big tennis fan. Uh... Yeah, I watched that match by myself. Usually, Wimbledon was like a party at
1: home; friends would come over. And uh, I, I have a bookend match for that very same match, but I completely agree with you yeah. because we we know very well that Agassi had the upper hand in that rivalry between yeah. the- now
0: we know Agassi was reading Becker's tongue. I mean, if had he <laughs> had he freaking kept his tongue in his mouth, <laughs> he, he would have won a few more tennis matches. Yeah, that was a special match. I mean, Becker didn't miss a single first serve.
1: Uh, what I remember what I remember about that match is how well Becker was volleying uh, because Agassi's returns were pinpoint at Becker's feet and he would pick up these shoestring volleys and, and yeah, drop and, shots.
0: And, and I don't know if you remember, like it was 6-2-4-1, Becker has stopped going to the net even on the first serve and he was contained at the baseline and finally he won, I think, a 20-stroke rally. The crowd got into it and then he started, you know, it was more convincing, uh, you know, service holes and, you know, led
1: to uh, led to that win. The bookend match for me on the other side was Andy Roddick beating Andy Murray. Uh, 2009 sim- semis? Similar rivalry. Murray had always had the upper hand against Roddick. Um, and I really wanted Roddick to win. I mean, Roddick is one of the tragic stories at Wimbledon. I mean, he's he's come so close and he's he's run up against the greatest of all time, unfortunately. Um, and I was rooting for Andy that match. And I, I back of my mind, I didn't think he would actually win it. Uh, but he... He produced a Becker-like performance.
0: Talking of Roddick, where do you rate Roddick as, uh, on the list? Uh, on the men who did not win Wimbledon between Lendl, Roseville,
1: Rafter, Roddick. Where do you rate him? Uh, I don't think he's the greatest player that did not win, but he was definitely the greatest grass-court player that did not win Wimbledon in my mind. I, I rate him higher than uh, Ivan Lendl on this list.
0: Uh, okay, I kind of have to disagree. We have agreed enough on this podcast. I think Lendl learned to volley. Lendl played in an era with Max and Beckers and Edberg and even Cash and like with pure grass court exponents were on full display. And Lendl is a man like, you know, if he didn't know anything, he would go and practice and practice. Remember, he had a new racket for it. He skipped French Open at his peak two years. So to me, overall, I think Lendl, if Wimble, if Lendl was playing this Wimbledon like Corda said, he would have won it. When the grass is bouncing, you know, high... There are no well, bad that bounces. Is true.
1: Well that is true. I mean 5
0: semis and 2 finals I think that's I, I, pretty phenomenal. I think
1: I think it's who Andy was up against that makes me feel he was a better player. Um he gave Roger all he could handle um in the in the 2000. No that's fight. a
0: matchup. you know Andy probably would Andy probably lost to Roger almost everywhere besides Miami and one win in Toronto. But my point is Lendl was coming in against like real grass court players when grass played like grass and uh, it was serve and volley
1: you know and Lendl was a horrible well, let's let's put it another way, Sagar. If if um, Roger Federer was not playing, would you agree that Andy Roddick would have won a couple of Wimbledon's?
0: Definitely would have won uh, one, if on, not a couple. On the other hand, because Lendl, was there. You know? On the other
1: hand, with Lendl, he lost to quite a few people, not named Boris. No, Becker. but that,
0: that was a different. No, he lost uh, three times to Becker, once to, lost Mac, to
1: Cash. Lo- once to Cash, once to Cash. Twice to Edberg, so these are all. Like... That that's my point. Is Andy Roddick was clearly the second best player on on grass every year, and and he was the second best player to the greatest of all time.
0: No, I mean I I don't know I think it's debatable. Uh, Roddick was pretty good, but I think he's definitely on the short list. Pat Rafter is another guy who I think should have won a Wimbledon title.
1: That is, he's he's a good pick. Uh, And speaking of Cash, um, the other great match I remember was, again, back to 1992, is McEnroe against Cash. Oh, second
0: down. That's that's how the tournament started. I mean, again. Yes. And uh,
1: again, I'm a John McEnroe fan. I was rooting for Pat Cash. Not as a commentator, by the way. But (laughs) I I was a John McEnroe fan as a player. And he was in the twilight of his career. And... uh, you know that match was very memorable because uh, again it was five sets and he won it. Um, uh, won it in the fifth, six uh, two. All right. So let
0: me throw one more question at you. So all the men who won Wimbledon once, who do you think
1: got the luckiest? Cash, Agassi, Krycek, Ivanisevic, Shtik? I think the luckiest was Ivanisevic. I uh, have to say this uh, because
0: luckiest me here. Uh, also, my point is uh, who's kind of. Oh, who
1: doesn't deserve doesn't to
0: win Wimbledon? Yeah, I shouldn't say deserve is a strong word, but yeah, you. Right.
1: You uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I, I I would say in my mind, and I, I, it has to be between Krychek and um, and Cash, but I will say it's Krychek. Uh, he caught Sampras on on a bad day for Sampras. They matched up well, and then after that, it was easy easy for him once he got past that quarterfinal.
0: But then, by your standards, like you know what the analogy used for Rodic, then Krychek should be given the kudos because he beat the most dominant player. While Cash benefited with Peter Duhan taking Becker out, McEnroe wasn't the same guy. He just had to beat an aging
1: Connors and a choking Lendl. Which is also true. And I, I really struggled with this one. But I just think that Pat Cash was the superior player uh, between the two of them. Um, he also made another slam final. Um, no, Cash was more like Mac. You know more volley. He could rally at the net. Right. Krychek was,
0: an, you know, superior version. Not superior, but more like the Becker samples. He had so, a bigger
1: serve. So it, it's still. I mean, for me, either one could see Krychek as a great underachiever or someone who, in my mind, was it was a flash in the pan. He hey, just, one of the few
0: guys who has a winning record against Pistol Pete. So well, Krychek is. You know uh, that
1: Wayne Ferreira had a pretty decent record. Yeah, too. but not
0: winning. I think it's five seven or something.
1: Right. I. I mean, I'm. I'm, I'm not going to give uh, Krychek a whole lot more credit. I mean, he won Wimbledon after all, but. Um, I I think he is of the of the four you mentioned. I think he's the he's the least deserving of them. And you are totally
0: overlooking that. Michael Stieck, Uh You think he's more deserving
1: than these two gentlemen? The final I watched Michael Steak play. The level that he played at, um, I, I thought was phenomenal. He completely deserved to win that. Um, Boris Becker didn't show up for that final. We know that, but um, no, I think he got outplayed. He got completely outplayed. Uh, so. And nobody there's no, saw. There's it. no
0: sleeping pill excuse for that one. <laughs> no, no one saw
1: that coming. Yeah. So um, I, I, I'll give Steak more credit, and also I think Steak stayed in the top ten for longer than the other guys.
0: And okay, so what's what are your favorite moments from the women's side of the, the
1: of the championship? Oh, the the greatest moment for me was Navratilova beating Steffi Graf. Um, nineteen eighty seven uh, this was Graf was up and coming. She had beaten Navratilova at the French Open that year, hmm. and uh, I'm sorry to say, but I am a Graf hater. Uh, oh, hater, I mean that's someone. You're she you're, was uh, for me. You're a credible podcaster. I mean, don't. Use the word hate. <laughs> I'm, just you how, I'm just telling you. Save it I'm just telling how I felt as a ten-year-old kid, um, and. Thankfully, she married Agassi and now she's in the good books. But, Why uh, thankfully? What is Agassi? <laughs> because I root for Agassi. Okay, yeah. okay. that's kind of bizarre. <laughs> thankfully, okay. So anyway, my point was uh, Navratilova was, for me, she represented. I, I still think she's, she's the greatest player in tennis history. Um, she just doesn't get enough credit for that. Um, and that final, a lot of people saw it as a changing of the guard. It did happen the following year. Yeah. But she held her own, beat Graf in Wimbledon, and then beat her again at the US Open that year. Um, and for me, that that was that was super exciting to watch.
0: I agree, most part with you, because I was also a huge Navratilova fan. And uh, the only player who I've changed sides on is Steffi Graf. I was so sick of her dominant as a kid, when she was dominating, winning slam after slam. And then there came a time when uh, Monica Seller started beating her up. And then... Me and my sister, you know, we were kids. We were watching this French Open final, and Steffi loses about nine seven. And I was rooting for Monica. Yeah, yes. I know. I mean, I I didn't know you then, but yeah, you've told me many times. So then we became Steffi Graf fans in that match. And then a few weeks later, they played a Wimbledon, and Graf gave her a beating of a lifetime. So to me, that was like one of the one of my
1: favorite women's matches from that era. I remember that match very painfully. Um, but having said that. I won't say Steffi Graf got lucky, but getting to twenty-one slams was lucky for Graf because of. Oh, you are going in a
0: different direction. This part does <laughs> not to discredit the great Steffi Graf. Or, this is about our Wimbledon memories. Uh, what else stands out? What are your uh, some of the upsets that? Uh, you, you
1: know, I I just have to bring this up, Sakib. One match that stood out for me, and I know this, this is going to sound really cheesy, but it was Leander Pace against Marcus Andraska. Uh, it it was, was junior, the boys' final. Right? It was 19- the boys' final in nineteen ninety and um you know it, uh, being being an indian fan and a kid nobody saw that coming nobody saw another indian player get get that far um leander turned out to be pretty decent in his career i mean um, yeah his singles career was not that great um, although he did have a bronze medal in olympics win over sampras in new haven a win over sampras um but that result was very exciting. It was almost as exciting as watching one of my favorites, um, you know, uh, Becker or uh, or McEnroe win Wimbledon, um, was to listen to BBC and uh, and hear about Leander Pace uh, beat Marcus Andraska. Uh, and,
0: you know, I, I inserted that detail that Leander beat Sampras. I have a story to share. Uh, in 98, I went to my first pro tournament in New Haven. And we saw the kuchera ivani final. And then we saw the great Steffi Graf practice with a young player, Amelia Moresmo. We got a picture taken with her, you know, totally, you know, the fanboy moment. And then we talked to a guy who was driving players in the championship. And this guy told me that uh, Sampras was here and he called Sampras' names. And I said, why is that? He said, this guy is pretty cocky. I think uh, after losing to Pays, Sampras destroyed the change room. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is, again, you know, these things don't make out. And this is not to discredit. I mean, Pete's a gentleman, but probably, I think, probably didn't digest. I, I think this is probably what Pete thought of Leander Pace. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, back to Wimbledon before we wrap this up. What are the, some of the upsets you want to share with our audience since we are like two older gentlemen here, you know, talking about 80s and 90s tennis? What stands out to you? Impact-wise, not like actually what is the greatest, like, but what do you think as a kid or as a fan, what changed
1: your tennis narrative? Like what upset stands out? Yeah, I mean, we we have to go to Peter Duhan and Boris Becker. That is, to me, the greatest upset in in Wimbledon, uh, because this was a two-time champion. The famous uh, line: uh, famous. "I lost a tennis match, not a war." <laughs> That's right. Uh, playing on on the grave a uh, graveyard of champions on court two, no. court one, actually. Um, so I, you know that that match for me is is the biggest upset. What about you, Saket?
0: Uh, I mean, impact wise. I would say as a kid, you know, I I was just turned into tennis uh, as a big time fan and wanted to see Becker and we didn't get live tennis till semi. So yeah, I saw her losing in in the morning news. Yeah, pretty, you know, painful memory. But Steffi Graf losing to what is Laurie McNeil, because we were not used to seeing upsets in the women's draw and that to Steffi Graf. That's a good one. I didn't, I still didn't know what to make of that upset when I, you know, obviously I've evolved as a fan. I know,
1: I, I think I know more about the game. But that that is one upset that really opened up the draw. Yeah, I mean, and Graf, Graf never lost early. I mean, th- this is we're, we're not even talking about upsets in women's tennis. We're talking about the great Steffi Graf, who, who just didn't have an off day. Who well, you hated? <laughs> I mean, that's why. Uh, and and obviously that that was a big day for me to see Graf leave. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I agree that 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 was one of the greatest uh, upsets I've seen. And then uh, Rasol over Nadal, I think that's another upset uh, recent time which. I guess You know, I've I've thought about that one. Um, To put it in context, yes, it's a big upset and it seemed like a huge upset during that time. But then when you see what happened to Nadal year in and year out after that, um, somehow I feel like it's diminished the status of that particular result because Russell was uh, playing some excellent tennis.
0: I I think I disagree because that year Nadal was still playing some good tennis and his grass troubles started, I think, more around... 2014, the year he lost to Kyrgios. I think that was just Rasol getting hot. And I believe the roof was on for that match, right? Nadal had won the first two sets. Yes. So that was like some sheer drama.
1: There was a lot of drama. Rasol pacing around the baseline yeah. and Rafa calling him out for being intimidating. I mean, it, it, there was a lot of drama in that match. And it was a huge result. But, uh, you know, then you have to then say Rafa losing to uh, Darcis, for instance, was also a, a huge upset. All right,
0: special question. What is your favorite Federer moment? Because we haven't talked Roger in this in this context
1: yet. So my favorite Federer moment has to be his first Wimbledon win. Um, I skipped a cousin's wedding. We had gone there to actually for the wedding. Oh, the Philippoussis final. The Philippoussis final. And um, and we, you know, my cousin and I, Vinny, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, uh, we just made the executive decision to say, you know what. She's gonna get married. Everybody's gonna be there. She's not gonna notice we're gonna be around. That's very nice of you guys. And right? oh, uh, she doesn't listen to this podcast. And <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, I hope she doesn't either. Uh, but <laughs> but you know, it it was my favorite moment because our decision was so vindicated. Um, mm. that that was that was big.
0: Yeah, one of my favorite moments was two thousand four final against Roddick because uh, uh, I must admit, you know, I was not a big fan of Andy Roddick and to me. Uh, Federer losing to Roddick was probably like uh, one of the worst feelings you can, you know, have on a tennis court as a fan. So when he came back after several rain delays, because Roddick was really playing, you know, he was hitting the ball extremely hard. That that was the
1: one match where I think Roddick could have won, even though he played that big five setter in 2009. I never had the feeling he would actually pull it off. But 2004, I Mm. actually thought Roddick had a shot.
0: And the other one is uh, when Federer came back to beat Beneteau in 2012 Wimbledon. Because uh, you, I felt like this is a year he's been playing really well. And all of a sudden, you know, he's losing two sets to Julian Beneteau, I'm sure. or uh, well, He was down two sets to one. But yeah, he was pretty much close to being eliminated. So that match stands out. What much. about,
1: so, I mean, I know it doesn't sound like much of an upset. But what about Sampras losing to Krychek? Uh,
0: it was a huge upset because we were also not used to seeing Sampras lose. But uh, Krychek uh, had given him trouble outside of Wimbledon as well. Sampras just did not like the Krajčeks, the Philippus, the guys who were serving as big as him. Even Steak had some decent results against Sampras. So that was a typical player, uh, that style of play that Sampras struggled with. When someone can, you know, you know, uh, play big boy tennis against him. Because that was something, his medicine to rest of the tour. So to answer your question, it was an upset, but I wouldn't put it at the same level. Because Krajčeck was a pretty, you know,
1: good servant volleyer and a big serve guy who was
0: expected to do well at Wimbledon. So...
1: You know, speaking of Federer's first win, another thing that I, um, you know, that things opened up for Federer at that time uh, was Leighton Hewitt losing early uh, in that Wimbledon, uh, if you remember, to Ivo Karlovic. Yeah. Uh, that, for me, was one of the great greater upsets of that time. I mean, nobody had heard of this guy. Yeah, And beating, he said he was serving out taking, of a tree. Taking out the defending champion on the
0: opening Monday, yeah. So that
1: was... And Federer struggled against Hewitt in the onset at, of their career, and at, right? at, the, at that time of their career. So things, I'm not saying Federer wouldn't have beaten Hewitt. I think he would have. But, uh, you know, things kind of worked out in, in a weird sort of way. But it was one of the biggest upsets that caused it. All
0: right. So that was a good trip, uh, memory lane. And I hope we didn't bore
1: some of you with this uh, uh, this kind of a chat. So, yeah, so we, we should be back again with, with a preview of uh, the Wimbledon once the draw comes up. Yeah, I think I have to catch
0: hold of you uh, when wherever you are, Detroit or Iceland or, you know, whatever your destination <laughs> is. We have to do one, uh, I think, Friday evening, if not no later than Saturday morning. And then we can, you know, give our two cents on what's going to happen at the championships. So, yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, like Anand had mentioned, we have a website where we post these... Uh, uh host these podcasts and there's a blog page where we both occasionally contribute we try we'll try to be more regular
1: yeah do check out our latest posts uh sakib and i have picked our favorites and dark horses for wimbledon coming up
0: and also a request whoever's listening i know there's a steady uh listening base at least consistent listening base. that you know and thanks for the support by tuning in so please make it more engaging by dropping in your comments and even if you think you know our comments are you know what are we smoking or you know we don't know tennis even just don't abuse but yeah share, share share your comments if you if you agree or disagree with this because this will uh, help us make better at producing this kind of content and uh, yeah all is not lost uh we'll probably try to go to a different tournament i know us open i shared with everyone has declined our you know uh and rightfully so i don't think there's enough body work to go sit with those guys one yeah.
1: thing i will say sakib Sa- 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 is that you and i we're going to stop trying so anyway enough of banter and enough of uh, unnecessary
0: chatter but yeah just give uh, give a listen to the podcast and check out our page and blog and uh, we thank uh, we thank you all for the support so far you've shown to our podcast we've completed 8 months now great thanks everyone bye now